Welcome to CJSW Writer's Block, broadcasting from the University of Calgary at 90.9 on your FM dial. I'm host and producer Dimphony Dronick. I'm host and producer Cody Dronick. Our show airs at 8 p.m. on the third Wednesday of every month. And if you've missed it live, you can check out our podcast at cjsw.com. On our show this month, we have poets Lisa Richter and Alex Williamson, and we have short fiction writer Barbara Miller-Biles, and we also talk to Candace Jane Dorsey about her new mystery novel. Alexander Williamson is a Canadian living with cystic fibrosis, and he is very lucky to be in Canada while having CF. Mostly, Alex only cares about books and fighting people. He writes scary stories and sad poems. He fences and boxes, too. He has a BA in English from Mount Royal University, and that made a big difference. But most of what he learned came from falling off of things, getting lost, or being punched in the face. Hello, I'm Lynn Cadence, and this is CJSW Writer's Block. Today I'm speaking with Alex Williamson, author of a debut poetry collection, Very Bright, Almost Pretty. Hello, Alex. How are you today? I'm all right. How are you today? Good. So tell me, why did you write this book? How did it come into being? Well, it started with a few poems, and then there were more poems. Um, A lot of the poems are are very personal to me and my experiences with uh, cystic fibrosis and uh, just being alive in general. So um, I suppose for me, poetry is always kind of been a way to just help process life and uh, kind of make make a bit more sense of everything. So I had a lot of things I needed to uh, work through, I guess, I suppose. Mm-hmm. What is cystic fibrosis? And really briefly, how does it affect you? You talk a lot about it in the book, obviously, but just as a little yeah. intro. Cystic fibrosis is <clears throat> it's a genetic disorder. It affects about 4,000 Canadians. Um, it affects like breathing and digestion and uh, ability to thrive. So it's like ability to you know grow and um, get proper nutrition and everything. Uh, it's our our current life expectancy is about 60. Uh, that's come up a lot over the years. It used to be like 18, 12 before then. So there's a lot been a lot of like advancements in the treatments, but um, it's still. Uh, a pretty harsh thing to deal with and more or less affects every part of life, really. Mm -hmm. Very bright, almost pretty, as a phrase, appears in two poems, the first in reference to blood and in the second about your people, people with cystic fibrosis. Tell me about the book title and what exactly does it mean to you? Uh... Well, the, the book title is one of the last things to change for a long time. It was called um, called something else. Um, I suppose the title to me is about seeking uh, seeking to make something from suffering, <laughs> from illness, um, from challenges. Uh, and like the the first reference is to hemoptysis, so when you cough up blood from your lungs, 
and it is really bright blood when it comes out. It's it is kind of pretty, <laughs> except it is also terrifying. Mm-hmm. Um, so I uh, yeah, I, I wanted the cover to or the title to kind of capture that mix of like hope and I suppose horror, <laughs> hope and horror. Mm-hmm. You talk a lot about both in the throughout the book one of the things that you say is ambitious and illness make a tight race so sometimes the illness is quite dark and you have to work harder it would seem at ambition would be more difficult to hold your ambition in mind yeah i mean for for people with cf uh they say we basically have a part-time job of just doing our, our lung treatments and our exercise and things to take care of us. So there's just less hours in the day. Mm-hmm. And then we get sick and like I've spent, you know, time in the hospital for a few weeks and months. And uh, I know there's a lot of CF patients who have it a lot worse than I do. And have, uh, like there's one person on Instagram I follow who's been in the hospital for a year Um with CF-related exasperations. Um, and besides writing, one of the the other activities you've taken up include boxing and sword fighting, which appear throughout the book. How did you get involved in those activities? <laughs> I've been fencing most of my life. Um, I think I was like eight or nine when I started. And basically, the you know the doctors told my parents that I needed a good source of physical activity and I was always into like nights and you know fantasy stuff as a kid so fencing was just an easy choice and uh, I just stuck with it and I always really loved it. Um, In the boxing I started um, about two years ago I uh, had a really bad few years where my health was just constantly bad and I was in a kind of a strange living place in BC and um, bad relationship and stuff. And uh, I kind of just decided to change everything about my life. And boxing was one of those ways I could fight for myself. Mm-hmm. What, and what about those activities? Is there something about fighting illness, fighting your feelings about the illness? Or is it just a probably activity? <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think there is a, a big part of it that's like, in a way, I feel like I'm always kind of at war with my own body, <laughs> um, just always fighting lung infections and just everything. Uh, and, I, and I think like I, I, I enjoy combat sports. Not because I like to hurt people or anything like that, but because I'm always fighting myself, and this is just a way I can make that um, that feeling a reality, something that I can work with and strive towards. It's also really good cardio to go boxing, so that helps. Yeah. The other th- kinds of poems that appear throughout the book are these six perfect day poems and then six obituary poems. Can you tell me about them and... The relationship sure. between them? Uh, I think the obituaries came from uh, wanting to not be so gloomy about just 
realities of, of life. Mm-hmm. Like each obituary is kind of a satirical take on a lot of ways that I could potentially die, like a lung infection shut down or a botched lung replacement surgery or um, I think there's one where I get eaten by a tiger, but that's... Yeah. <laughs> Do you want to read one? I think um, probably so the just... easiest way to understand these would be to hear it. Oh, sure. You want me to read one? Yeah. Okay. So this is my obituary three. Alexander Joseph Williamson was presumed dead after disappearing from his hospital bed on January 15th, 2053. The attending nurses and doctors, when asked how this could happen, only shrugged collectively. Good riddance to a difficult patient, commented the doctors. He brought us chocolates, said the nurses, but they all had work to do. Authorities promised to keep their eyes open. Williamson's friends and family refused comment. They all smiled secrets at each other. And the other category there was um, the perfect day poem. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that and read an example of maybe a favorite perfect day? Sure. Um, yeah, so if the obituary poems are kind of trying to play in the face of death, I think um, the perfect day poems are trying to just express gratitude for the for life for the parts of life that I, um, I cherish the most. Uh, and there's, they all include like friends or family or, um, activities that I like travel and sword fights. <laughs> um, so here's perfect day six. It's actually the last poem in the book. Mm-hmm. It's a nice day in October so I can wear a sweater. I love sweaters. They're like big hugs. I can carry around with me, but I always get too warm so I'm happy to be in my sweater now on a nice, slightly chilly day. I've gathered up a family from the strangest little places, from tables and stages, from offices and cages. The whole bunch of us are spending the day together. Life has been life all this time, but today everything is okay. My wrinkly old arm has 25 tattoos, each one representing a book I put out. I look around the warm firelight or the setting sun. We're playing a board game or eating or just chatting. My work is done. Lovely. It's a nice way to conclude the book, I think. Congratulations on the publication of your first book, Alex. As Natalie Meisner states in the cover copy, the book is fun laced with wry humor. The poems are embodied, impactful, and filled with audacious hope. It's a wonderful, impressive, powerful work. Those are my words. And I'm looking forward to your next book. Oh, thank you. Lisa Richter is the author of the poetry collection Closer to Where We Began, Tightrope Books 2017, and a chapbook, Intertextual. Her poetry and nonfiction have appeared in a number of periodicals and anthologies. She lives, writes, and works as an English as a second language teacher in Toronto. I'm Lynn Cadence, and this is Writer's Block on CJSW. Today, I'm speaking with Lisa Richter, author of a new poetry collection called Nautilus and Bone. Hello, Lisa. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing great. Thanks a lot. 
I'm very interested in hearing more about your book. Tell me about Anna Margolin. Who was she and why is she important to you? Anna Margolin was a Yiddish language poet who was born in the late 19th century in what is now Belarus, who immigrated to the United States in the early 1900s. She was of Jewish descent, and she was a poet who defied a lot of the gender norms and values of her time. She lived a very unconventional life. She had numerous lovers and marriages, traveled extensively. She was involved in all kinds of labor organizing. She was involved in the Jewish intelligentsia of the Lower East Side in New York. And she made some pretty questionable life choices. And one of the reasons she was so important to me as a poet is, first of all, our lineage is linked. Um, my great-grandfather's last name originally was Margolin, and then he changed it, actually, something that sounded more Russian to avoid anti-Semitism. And he emigrated to Montreal around the same time that Anna Margolin emigrated to New York. Now, I discovered through my research that Anna Margolin was just a pseudonym, and her birth name was Rosa Lebensbaum. So no blood relation there, but I felt a certain kinship with her on a, on a spiritual level and kind of an aesthetic level as well. Throughout the book, you write poems to, for, about Anna Margolin in a hybrid of fact and fiction to create auto-slash-biography. Can you explain how you came to make those decisions and why? How did you put this book together in that way? Well, originally, the collection was supposed to engage with both my own personal stories as well as Anna Margolin's. And as the book evolved, I realized that it was more important for me to tell her story and to tell them in her voice. Um, and what I discovered along the way was that using a persona was actually liberating for me as a poet to sometimes just step outside of myself and outside of my own personal experience. And ironically, and I mean, paradoxically, I found it possible for me to write about my life story and my life experience through the prism of somebody else's. And that somehow the themes of Anna Margolin's life and some of her life experiences mirrored mine in odd and unexpected ways. Like, for example, she migrated to Palestine as a young woman with her first husband. Um, that didn't work out very well. And she made the decision to leave and return to the United States. And when I was in my early 20s, I spent some time in Israel myself. And it wasn't really the best decision in the long run, but it was definitely transform transformational for me and um, part of what uh, me, the person I am today. So there were these crossover points that I kept discovering. Um, not only that, but the need for me to write in conversation with her and in dialogue with some of the poems themselves that were really powerful and that took hold for me. Mm -hmm. Some of your research took you to New York. What was that journey like into into her life? Wow, New York. Um, that was really incredible. Um, it's a city that I've been visiting and I've had a connection with for a long time. 
but I'd never gone there as a writer doing research before. So that in itself was a really new and exciting experience for me. Um, and I'm very, I'm very lucky to have some good friends who live in um, the Lower East Side neighborhood of Manhattan, where Anna Margolin ended up uh, when she first immigrated to New York or to America. So I was able to stay in their apartment um, right there in the heart of that community, which had been basically the melting pot and was one of the most, if not the most densely populated place on earth in um, the 1910s when Anna Margolin lived there. And even though the neighborhood has undergone so many huge changes and more recently gentrification, um, there's still so much history and it's so alive there. Um, so just walking through those streets and seeing the old tenement buildings with the um, fire escape and being in the neighborhood and visiting old synagogues and the tenement museum, as well as the Yiddish um, archives and the New York Public Library, it really made me feel in some ways like I traveled back in time. And and it felt like I was embodying. It felt actually like an embodied experience. So it was less intellectual. It became more more part of me. So it was easier to channel her a little bit or what uh, Zohar Weeman-Kelman refers to your poetic ventriloquism. Oh, gosh, I love that. Um, and, and so hard. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, and what a great line and what an um, awesome blurb. I'm so grateful for that. Um, yeah, it really all kind of gelled once I was in New York. It all kind of came together for me in a, in a way that I hadn't before. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a bit about the poem Jewess and read a few short excerpts from it? Sure, I'd love to. So um, I wrote this poem in um, May of 2019 when I was in Saskatchewan doing a writing retreat at the, the Sage Hill Writing Experience, Spring Poetry Colloquium. Mm-hmm. And the poem emerged after I had um, done a little bit of research on the ways that Jewish women have been cast in literature and in visual arts, and many times with an Orientalist lens as the sort of fetishized or exoticized other. So that kind of representation and uh, it's sort of interlapping, or sorry, I should say overlapping connection with anti-Semitism was uh, very strong and present in my mind when I wrote it. I was also very influenced by fairy tales and myths and those and folk tales. And those are three threads that definitely weave through the book. Mm-hmm. So I'll read uh, the first, uh, maybe the first two sections of the poem. Jewess. One. Don't call me Jewess. Call me hellfire and fish hooks, the moon as it violets the earth in mollusk silver shadow, papered with yellowed envelopes and wheat. Call me pale skins stretched into backlit sails. Call me opium milk rose, a comet saliva tail spittling the blue globe. Call me abacus. Call me the bespoke news you wind and loops around your fingers, the tangerine light that shimmies through curtains as evening sidles in steady advance towards you, the burnished apple's high scarlet gloss, a windpipe's hollow moan. Call me newsreel, hollyhock, 
sundial, astrolabe, the peacocks shimmering cyanide blues and gangrene greens, the rusted latch from the outhouse door that claws open and warms to your calloused clasp, and iodine sunset swelling across the wounds. Two. Jewish, the feminine ESS, the S doubled, two snakes brandished like iron daggers in each hand of the Minoan goddess. Add a final E to make Jewess, if you like, for an extra Shafarian besmearing. Insolent as Lilith, seditious as Eve, murky, dark, hairy, hook-nosed, her bolder breasts leaking venom and ink. She throws the evil eye, turning men into writhing eels. Between her legs, the mouth of the bear's cave, musty as wintered sleep, matted, slick, and deadly as the excretions of insects lurking for their prey. So I'll leave it there at that. What is Nautilus and Bone? Where did you get the inspiration for the book title? It appears in that poem. It does. It appears towards the end of the third section mm-hmm. in the couplet, hang me on your boudoir wall in a frame of nautilus and bone, shadow box me for your velvet line safe. Um, and it took a long time for that title to emerge. It had originally um, had other titles that came from lines from Anna Margolin's poetry, but none of them really landed. And I was searching for some time for something that felt like it really encapsulated the book. And the Chambered Nautilus is actually one of the most ancient creatures in the world. I mean, it predates the dinosaurs. It's been living in the ocean since those primordial times. And the way the Nautilus works is quite amazing. It keeps building additional chambers. Once it grows out of an old one, it builds a new one. And so it's constantly evolving and constantly moving from one incarnation of itself into the next, which is why it's often been used as a symbol of personal growth and evolution. And it seems to me the perfect metaphor for Anna Margolin and her life, as well as a lot of our lives, as we move from one iteration or from one stage of it into the next, and we move and we grow and we transform from those experiences and we journey across place and time to the next destination. Anna Margolin wrote an epitaph. And she says, and you use it in your your last poem, she Mm -hmm. squandered her life on rubbish, on nothing. Mm -hmm. And that that poem actually goes on and appears on her grave. The end of it is, her ravaged spirit has abandoned its cage. Passerby, have pity, be silent, say nothing. Mm -hmm. You didn't. I know, I sure didn't. (laughs) So... Tell me how you responded to that. Wow, yeah. So that poem in particular is a really interesting one. It was not published in her original collection of poems, which came out in 1929. One of the few poems um, that she published afterwards at a time when she was um, kind of exiled in a way from life and or self-exiled. I mean, she really became a recluse and uh, as she get old, got older and she was very disillusioned after not receiving the critical attention to the book, the book she published that she hoped she would. 
And in my mind, I mean, that poem isn't really saying, um, you know, that we should respond at all to her, her life, but words are inadequate in some ways, or that some ways silence is the only adequate response to suffering. Um, and because she would, she did suffer quite intensely and, and dramatically in her own life. But for me, it was important to tell the story um, and to engage with silence and to engage with those moments of quietness and to engage with those moments of difficulty to give a more complete picture of the life of this complex and rich and incredibly uh, fascinating character. Um, in my suite of poems entitled Interrogating the Mad Woman, earlier on in that mm-hmm. section, mm-hmm. I use a lot of white space between the questions and answers delivered in the voice of the poet herself as I imagine her. And so those, those poems, I did my best to convey some of the disconnect that I think she experienced in her life. What would you like to say to Anna Margolin if she were alive today? So if I could address Anna Margolin directly, I would thank her profusely <laughs> and fall at her feet. But I'd like to ask what it was like to be a woman writing in the early 20th century at a time when women's rights were emerging and women were fighting on the front lines for not just the right to vote, but for labor rights and for human rights. They were really on the front lines. And I would like to ask what lessons she learned from that experience that could guide us through the struggles that we're experiencing in the world today. There's still so much inequality. There's still so much oppression. And in so many ways, I mean, we're experiencing many of the same struggles that people went through in that era. So. I wish you could I wish you could tell me how to navigate these uncertain times. Good question. Mhm. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk to me today, Lisa. I wish we had more time. Me too, but thank <laughs> you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Barbara Miller-Biles is a Calgary writer. She attended the University of Alberta and taught primary school until her own daughter and son were born. She explored fiction writing in extension courses and local writing groups. Her short fiction has appeared in Canada, the U.S., the U.K., and Sweden in various literary magazines. I'm Lynn Cadence, and this is Writer's Block on CJSW. Today, I'm speaking with Barbara Miller-Biles, author of a new short story collection called Dear Hearts. Hello, Barbara. How are you today? Hi, Lynn. I'm fine and happy to be here. I'm really interested in knowing more about your book. So for starters, who are these dear hearts? Tell me of the title. For one thing, as I'm thinking of the Geneva stories, I thought of a very, very old song, Dear Hearts and Gentle People. So the dear hearts came to me, and then I thought, well, every character in this book can be a dear heart, What you know, Maybe their behavior isn't upstanding, but they're still dear. So it, so it was my way of pulling together the, the 
different stories and different characters. These stories have been written over a long period of time, and mm-hmm. most have been published in literary magazines. Mm-hmm. The first publication you have listed there is 1994, a very poignant story called The Guardian. Right. Throughout the stories, over the next 25 years, continues to run a thread, fairly often, of the experience of young women in high school and university, exploring their responses to changing sexual mores. Tell me about the feminism you experienced when you came of age and why it seems to have so deeply imprinted on you. Oh, that's a really good question. In some ways, it, it, it's still there today. There, there is a stigma around certain things that women can or can't do. And I guess I grew up with the background of the, the 50s idea of women and I'd say at about the age of 12, I really enjoyed being myself because I felt like I was capable and I could do things, anything. Then when, when romance started to come into my life or when I dated, you got a different view of what were people interested in about you. So... I would say up until up until university, I still held on to all kinds of beliefs about women myself and maybe that you should be a virgin when you got married, that kind of thing. Then during the 60s, it was like a revolution of change. So all of that went out the window for me. And uh, by the time I started university, I felt judged in part still by my brain, but also as a a prospect, a body. Maybe even still today, I'm a little sensitive about. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And not everything about that sexual revolution was as free as you point out. And... To be fair to to men, their ideals were grounded in the the 50s too. And so I'm sure it was confusing for everybody. But uh, being a female, that's my point of view. So, Right. Some of your female characters make brief appearances, but others return again and again. Mm-hmm. Who is your favorite out of all of those and why? The Geneva stories are a whole set of stories with the same character progressing in age for over a period of 10 years. The progression that we went through in terms of our own self-image and the image of others, I think I kind of reflect the changes as it goes through each story. I actually kind of like the story Sylvia. What did you get out of exploring Sylvia as a character? Sylvia went away, as as I knew some girls that did, because of pregnancy. There is a twist at the end with the narrator, who is more a part of the story than you might think at first. And there's a bit of humor in it, I guess. When did the story start to take shape in your mind as a collection? I did the Geneva stories, and I didn't think about it as a collection at the time. But then I thought I would like to do a series of of different women, 
around the 60s. So I started on that, and I, I wrote maybe four or five stories, and I didn't get enough. And then I was also interested in uh, a bit of magic realism. John Foles, many years ago, when I was in my 20s, I read, like I read the Magus. It wasn't magic realism. It was very elusive. And I was fascinated because I couldn't figure out what the story was about. But later on, I read, of course, um, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Isabel Allende, Alice Mm -hmm. Hoffman, John Irving, all of those I enjoyed and was influenced by. But I didn't necessarily even set out to, to write magic realism. When I started the story, it just kind of went in that direction. But I was probably influenced in a subtle way. I, I didn't set out to do it. Uh-huh. Tell me about a story that you wrote that was a particular challenge to you and what you learned that made it work. So an, an aha moment, if you will. Marrying stationary, I guess. It was a story that I delved into a bit of art information. I was just curious and did research on it. I always find that fun to do. When I brought it back and it related, somehow fascinating to me, it related to uh, the point I was trying to make about this character and how she was heading into a relationship and a marriage that did not make any sense. Somehow, art made that clear for me. Interesting. Music also plays a role, mm-hmm. like art, in your mm-hmm. book. Either jazz, classical, rock and roll. And I noticed a copy of the History of Rock and Roll on the bookshelf behind you during your Inanna launch. Oh, right. So I wondered how consciously you construct the specifics of music. To what extent is it about creating a sensory experience? And to what extent is it about content and historical accuracy? Mm. Definitely content and historical accuracy, part of the the setting. Certain things would trigger a song in my head. And sometimes from there, I might look up a little bit of information about the song. But it it always stemmed from, from a song that I heard or that just suddenly came to mind. Mm-hmm. What is it that you would like for us to take away from the book about how you work? My stories are really observations without conclusions. And that's maybe why they're short stories <laughs> instead of a novel that comes to a conclusion. I don't know. Some of yours are very short. How do you write a very, very short piece? Still have a beginning, ending, conclusion, and mm. raise lots of questions. Is it more challenging to write a very short piece? No. It's just the way it works. It's just the way it comes out. For me, if I feel I've said what I want to say, then that's enough. I don't really have a reason to embellish it. None of these stories do I start out with with an end goal in mind, like length or conclusion. That's why I enjoy doing it. It's kind of an exploration. Well, congratulations on the publication of Dear Hearts. It seems to be off to a good start. 
and I appreciate your taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, thank you very, very much. Thanks for having me. Candace Jane Dorsey is the award-winning author of Black Wine, A Paradigm of Earth, Machine Sex and Other Stories, Vanilla and Other Stories, and Ice and Other Stories. She is a writer, editor, former publisher, community advocate, and activist living in Edmonton, Alberta. Candace Jane Dorsey, welcome to CJSW Writer's Block. Thank you for having me. You're here today telling us about your rollicking new um, mystery from the Epitome Apartments mystery series called The Adventures of Isabel. Can you give the listener uh, a little bit of a, a synopsis or a summary of what this fantastically entertaining book is about? <laughs> well, my my book is uh, uh, the story of a, a nameless, downsized, bisexual social worker who's been unemployed for a year and is down to her last box of fish sticks, which she is sharing with her cat bunny wit, when uh, a friend calls and asks for help. Her granddaughter has been murdered. And she wants to, the police to stay honest about the case. As a reader, I was um, quite in awe of how, on the one hand, it's just a page turner. It propels you along. You're laughing out loud. And yet, at the same time, um, it's about some pretty heavy issues. And and um, in particular, it seems timely. Um, it taps into the zeitgeist of you know, Alberta and the economy and people living on fish sticks that they share with their cat and and the things they get themselves into perhaps because of both their moral stance in the world and um and a and a heavy dose of desperation too. <laughs> well <laughs> um I I am who I am, so you know, even when I'm being lighthearted I can't exactly shake my interest in social justice, but uh, this is definitely a, an example of the spoonful of sugar principle. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So there is this real playfulness to the whole narrative, despite mm-hmm. the fact that what they're dealing with is some terrible stuff with horrible people um, and, and very real kind of terrible stuff, you know, um, the way that as you mentioned, the way that um, people who live on the streets are looked at and perhaps how the police are not as, don't put in the effort that that uh, they deserve or the fate of drug users, all sorts of um, judgment and blame and, you know, that, that you talk about through your characters. But you do all of that in a way that... Um, creates these these wonderfully vivid people. I feel like I know them. And they're just smart-ass, phony characters commenting on the ridiculousness of the world in, in such a fun and playful way. Well, but, uh, and, a- but you also really play with language. So, so those are those two questions, you know. How, the It must have been fun to create those characters and then it must also be fun to really play with language. It, it, it is. And um, I mean, the thing about the, about the humor 
from from all the way through my life, really. When I was 20 years old, I became a child care worker with teenage girls for four years. And it was an experience that really um, altered my life so dramatically um, and, and built up in me a sort of righteous rage for the way certain people were treated, the way indigenous kids were treated. They got into the system far more than than uh, white kids did, and and the way that that children and and young adults were treated, and the, the abuses that could happen, and the the indifference or the collusion sometimes that the system would have, because that was in 1973. So we were dealing with the adolescent fallout of the 60s scoop, mm-hmm. who had been had been scooped out of households placed into other households, sometimes foster homes, sometimes adoptive, often uh, uh, almost, you know, sometimes they were as abusive or more abusive than the places they'd been removed from. Um, Social workers were acting off these ridiculous prejudices. And I mean, the whole thing just radicalized me in in a non-political way, like not, not about about a party of politics, but about the way people are treated, the the way marginalized people are treated. And basic human rights, really. Yeah. And and, and yeah. that that has never really worn off. And um but the thing is, you know, if you I think you've heard the expression, you know, you gotta laugh or cry, right? Well, if if all you can do is cry, you get burnt out. I, I was also thinking in some of the, um, you know, when I was looking at the language and, and where the uh, protagonist with great humor, uh, you know, breaks that fourth wall and starts speaking directly to the reader. I was also thinking or or talks about, you know, the correct diction or spelling that one of the other characters is using very fun and tongue in cheek. And it made me think about how your many decades of working as an editor at this stage in your life, you are a master of language and, and you just play with it. So I'm wondering how, you know, that perspective of writing across genres, but also editing across genres has um, influenced your your work as a novelist? Well, I've always had an uneasy relationship to genre. This whole sense that you are in a genre and then you're there forever and, and that if you write a different kind of story, you're actually taking a perilous journey. I guess it's true in marketing terms, but it's not really true for me as a, as a writer. I write the things I write and, you know, I guess I knew pretty early that these books were going to be mysteries. But I don't think of myself primarily as a genre writer. I think of myself as a writer who loves to play with all the different tropes that come with genres. And that's where we get back to your, a question you asked earlier about, in essence, um, the breaking the fourth wall thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always loved, when I was a kid especially, those books that said, Dear Reader. Mm-hmm. You know, and and dear reader, perhaps you are wondering or whatever, right? And totally breaking the fourth wall, and not, and yet being very old fashioned about it. Um, 
I, I just, I liked that. I, I, I somehow felt like I was being let in on a secret when the author said, dear reader, you know, so I'm sure that's where it came from. It, when I started so so it pulled you in rather than pull you out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It just made me feel like, oh, I'm getting a special moment with the author here. In addition to this wonderful story, I'm getting like the secrets. But the yeah. author you know, just is going to tell me specifically, the dear reader. And not only that, but I'm the dear reader. You know, I'm not just any old reader. I am beloved of this author. And therefore, we're in this together kind of thing. I, I just loved it. I loved it. Yeah. Uh, and, I, in, and in the adventures of Isabel, I would say it created a, a really, um, it created an intimacy that was very, you were let in on the secrets, the secret vulnerabilities too right and and also the secret wry kind of humor that they were you know that that some of them shared too so it was really fun i i can't say it enough times and i i hope that is um that does its service because it's also important in the sense of the topics that that this book talks about the social justice issues are so incredibly important but to be able to convey that to the reader in a way that keeps them reading about things that are maybe not always comfortable is just a, a gift well thank you for, for that i'm glad to hear you know i live i live in the inner city i live right downtown in edmonton and boyle street East downtown. Why is it that east is always the sketchy direction? It's like there's something privileged about west. Just yeah, I don't know. But anyway, so I'm living in east downtown, and and um, there's a couple of neighborhoods here: Macaulay north of me and Boyle Street south of the tracks, and um, we have more than our fair share of, of homeless people and and people with addiction issues and mental health issues, street people. Um, and right next to my house is a vacant lot. So in the summer, quite often that's a campground. And I, mean, I moved in here, right? I didn't <laughs> live in a suburban neighborhood that got overwhelmed by some sort of, you know, subcategory of humans or whatever. And yet, there are people who are living in this neighborhood who who treat it as if anything that, that they see around them is a personal inconvenience. They're looking at people who are in who are the most vulnerable people in our entire society. They are multiply challenged, not just by what's within them, but by the system around them and how they're treated. They struggle for survival and often don't survive. Um, and yet somehow um, there's there's this point of view that sees them as, well, my partner is also a writer and he, he wrote a book set in this area and he, he at one point used this, this line, which I was so admiring of, is basically that, that you know, the, the homeless people are, are blown up against the fence like plastic bags, kind of. Mm -hmm. And and that's kind of what you would see, you know. And 
I can't see how anyone could see that and and think, oh, that's cluttering up my lawn, rather than thinking, oh, there's a person at risk. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and so you know, I've been become involved in community events now and again, and there. Uh, luckily, my community league actually is quite in favor of you know social housing and and harm reduction and so on, and actually issued a statement about it. But one of the other communities nearby was like trying to stop for a while every single project. And yet the people who were stopping the project were also complaining about um, addicted people, homeless people sitting on their lawn. And I'm thinking you are fighting against a project that will, that will create harm reduction housing for 43 hard to house people. And yet you don't want them to be in that facility and yet you, you you can't figure out why someone would be sitting drinking or shooting up on, on in front of your fence. Like mm-hmm. how do you not see that if you didn't if you supported that facility instead, that those people wouldn't be there. Yeah, and, how can you not make the connection? And yeah. you know, I'm kind of I'm the kind of person who also like hears the words to the music in the restaurant. Like I, I have a lot of difficulty turning off peripheral stimuli so when mm-hmm. i go up into my neighborhood i don't i don't have i have a filter that turns off those those neighbors of mine who are less than savory like they're just they're there too and in some cases i gotta say you know 18 years in this neighborhood some of the people who've been the, the most helpful and the most steadfast have been people who had serious issues of their own, but they were still they were still going to be neighborly. They still you know, had their humanity. They're still paying attention, I guess is what it is. You know, like mm-hmm. some of them are pretty rough. We had this we had this guy who's been coming to our house to pick up the empty bottle for probably about twelve or fourteen years now. And when he first came, he was completely homeless and was getting beaten up in the shelters. And, you know, his life was really tough. And since then, he's been through a lot of of different situations. And he's now actually housed, although a bit precariously. But um, but he still comes. And it's quite funny because he got a cell phone. So he programmed in our number. So every now and then he phones and says, if you got any empties, you know, he comes by. But, um, you know, a couple of times he's brought me something that he found while he was bottle picking. He found something like in a, in a dumpster or discarded somewhere that he thought I might like. Mm-hmm. And, and um, like, not like something that actually had some, you know, I did like it, actually. You know? And and the other thing is, you know, over the years, we've seen him more probably than we see some of our friends. And and he thinks of us as as friends. You know, mm-hmm. he he comes and tells us about his health problems. And he he um, had a good friend that he went bottle picking with who, who died. Um, basically a you know systemic failure. But before he died they all got in they got into the harm reduction facility and, and his friend was indigenous so they could get into the the one called Ambrose place that's 
um, sort of based on indigenous healing. And, and so there mm-hmm. they were in this place where they could relax and just have, have a good life together. And so then his friend died. It was very tragic. But I went to the memorial service for the friend. Mm-hmm. And just watching, like watching and understanding that I, I just had, you know, I had this little interaction with these two guys. And they have these full and complete lives, just like everyone else. And this was an opportunity to, to celebrate a life that, you know, some some of these really negative NIMBY people would, would never celebrate, would never get it, would never understand. And, you know, I'm, I'm not particularly special in that. I just happen to pay attention. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not... Um, there's not all that much I can do. I have the income of a writer, right? So, um, so you know, which is actually less than a person on on Aish. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, so, it is what it is. But um, the heroism and courage that that marginalized people live with is more than we can even understand. Like, the, you know, it's amazing. Amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I even sound patronizing when I'm talking, but I can't help it because, you know, I'm lucky. I have a house. I, I'm a middle-class person, whatever. But I think I've been taught a lot of lessons in not making any, um, not drawing any conclusions about what is admirable in people. Just, you know, I did some work with Edmonton Heritage Council. I was on the board. And when the TRC came out, uh, Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, we tried to do a little work on understanding what that would mean for heritage in Edmonton. And we had a a wonderful round table with Chief Hilton Little Child and Rod Loyola and, and Mayor the Mayor Don Iveson and um and we went on this little kind of reconciliation journey, right? And the most important thing I've learned is to quit having an opinion. I'm a very opinionated Talkative, mousy person, as you can tell by you know, this conversation. And opinions are based on having the right to have an opinion, having the privilege to form an opinion and be willing to to leak it out into the world. Mm-hmm. And if there's anything that's making me wiser in my 60s, it's just shut up. <laughs> and you you know, listen, I don't have an opinion right off the bat. Listen, pay attention. Let in information come into you, into your mind, into your heart, and just just wait. Stay curious and keep keep observing. Well, and be be humble if that's possible. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. if I didn't have some kind of ego, I wouldn't write books at all. You know, we know we know that about ourselves. Even if we doubt ourselves, there's something, there's some some bit of strength and ego that makes us go ahead and say what we're going to say anyway. But mm-hmm. you know, it's good to hold that ego in check and, and remember that you don't have the answers. And for you know, as we get older, I'm sure you realize the same thing happens to all of us, and I'm sure you felt it too. I think we know all the stuff. Because we spent all these years learning all this stuff, mm-hmm. but there are areas, there are whole areas where we don't know anything, and and 
it's very hard for a person who has accumulated dignity and gravitas and experience and wisdom and age to just continue to be vulnerable to all the things we don't know. It's very much harder when you're coming up towards 70, which I keep saying, well, it's not, it's a ways yet, but it's, it's a less, it's becoming a short distance rather than a long one. Um, it's much easier to say, or it's much harder to, to be open that way than it is when you're like 20 years old and you're always wrong. You know, mm-hmm. you're, you're always wrong and you get marks and you're always wrong. And there's always something to fix, but then you, then you go through 40 or 50 years and you think, okay, well now I've got it. I've got it. You know, <laughs> I earned it. I've got it, but you know, you don't have it. So, you know, maybe this, maybe this, this exploration process in these books reflected in part, just throwing myself kind of throwing myself off the cliff into into whatever happened, you know, just being being less anchored, being less certain, being less opinionated. Well, as as a reader, I wanna say thank you for taking us on that journey, on that romp with you. And congratulations a thousand times over on the success of this book and the attention it's receiving. It's it's uh, well earned. Well, thank you, thank you for that. And and you you can't see, but I'm I've got a big smile because yeah, I'm feeling feeling good about it. And uh, so uh, thank you for asking. Well, thank you for being on the show today and spending so much time with us. It's been a lovely chat. You have been listening to Writer's Block here on CJSW. This is host Cody Dronick signing off. Thanks for listening.